Blockworks is hosting its Digital Asset Summit in October. Over 800 institutions are attending, including FTX, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Coinbase, and the London Stock Exchange. To get a discount, use code GUIDANCE250, all caps, GUIDANCE250. I am joined by Joseph Wang, the Fed guy, as well as our special guest, Daniel Nielsen, who is a monetary economist and the principal of Nielsen Macro Advisors. Dan is the author of Minsky from Polity Books, and his newsletter is called Soon Parted. Gentlemen, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jack. Great to be back. Great to meet you, Daniel. You too, Joseph. Joseph, the last time you were here was, I believe, three days before Jackson Hole. And you said something like, Jack, I may have pivoted. I think that what I see from the Fed is perhaps a little bit cowardly is a word that you use. And you said that the, uh, the Fed essentially is weak, uh, that they're already are talking about that they might have to pivot in the minutes and that you know perhaps Jay Powell is Arthur Burns. Three days later, we had uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell speak at Jackson Hole, where he was talking about how a labor market softening would be necessary to curb inflation, widely seen as a you know interpreted as a higher unemployment rate, and talking about how everyone can you know everyone has to take the pain. So, Joseph, my first question for you is: Jay Powell talking about pain? What was that? Was he hawkish enough to convince you that he is not Arthur Burns? Have you changed your mind, or are you still on the fence? Well, Jack, I think that Powell did a great performance on Jackson Hall. He was very hawkish, as you mentioned. His speech was short and sweet. And I think he did what he had to do, and that is to convince everyone that they're taking inflation seriously. Now, this is important from a monetary policy implementation aspect, because a lot of what happens in the markets, um, it's, it gets priced in by what the markets think the Fed will do. So if you remember, uh, a few weeks ago at least, some people in the markets, based on implied pricing, were thinking that, you know, maybe Powell would chicken out, maybe next year they would start to cut rates. Now, it was very important for monetary policy to work to have that pricing out of the markets. And so Powell did what he had to do. He did some open jaw operations, and it wasn't just him. Over the past few weeks, we'd have lots of people from the FOMC come out and basically give the same message. So in that sense, I don't think Powell uh, added anything new. He just basically reiterated what the team was saying over the past few weeks. Markets seem to be more convinced. Uh, but for myself, um, I think that we'll just have to wait and see. Right now, it's been really easy. I think everyone on the FOMC uh, is on board of getting into 35 to 4% by the end of the year. The real test will come next year when we're at 35 and 4%, and maybe we have some softening economic conditions. What are they going to do now? Now, you mentioned really well that uh, on the minutes, as I noted last time, even though we were still you know, fairly low in interest rates, two and a half, inflation was high, unemployment was low. In the minutes, we saw that many people on the FOMC were actually concerned of over-tightening. And I interpret that to be a weak FOMC. And you know, I actually, I, I, don't, I don't know if a lot will change between now and next year. So we don't, in my, in my view, we won't really know until they're put to the test. And the test is sometime early next year. So right now, I'll give the FOMC the benefit of the doubt, but uh, the real test comes in the coming months. I don't know, Dan, what do you think? I broadly agree with your assessment of Jackson Hole, of Powell's speech, uh, Joseph, from Jackson Hole last week. I think central bankers don't want to usually don't want to surprise markets. Sometimes a surprise can be good. Right now, they don't want to surprise markets. They want to steer markets uh, in the right direction. They signal uh, the minutes are a very carefully crafted document that sends very specific messages. Uh, Powell was on message. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, short speech. It's got to be it's got to be short when you're trying to send a simple message. The simple message was uh, that the yield curve needs to bend up, uh, I thought. And, and, uh, so far that was successful. Uh, rates are overnight rates. The Fed can put them exactly where they want, where it wants them 99 days out of 100 or more. Uh, rates farther out, two year and 10 year rate, it's got to talk through the markets. And, uh, and Powell was heard. Uh, Powell was heard when he sent that message. So I think, I think successful from, from the point of view of what he went into that speech trying to accomplish. 
I think probably more or less he did. Yes. And the way the mechanism by which the Federal Reserve controls near term forward rates, that is forward guidance, the name of this podcast. And that's sort of hard forward guidance where you know, in, in, in March of this year, he said, we're going to be really hawkish. We're going to be really, really hawkish. And the markets got the message and forward interest rates went up. People have been talking about the quote death of forward guidance. You know, heaven forbid this this podcast. But uh, how do you <laughs> could have to change and get have to get a new name now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> J- Joseph, why do people talk about forward guidance? Because it's it's just forward guidance by a different name. Instead of being explicit, he is just sort of sending out vibes. It's sort of soft forward guidance. And, and also, Joseph, can you comment on the real curve that D- Dan mentioned uh, changed, where the two year reached a new year high? I actually don't think it a high that had not seen since 2007. And now the 75 basis point hike is priced in at 75 basis point, that percentage shot up. And so a double hike is looking not likely and a triple hike is looking increasingly likely. And uh, it's looking like it's gonna be 3.75% by December, which is pretty close to where you know y- your target's been the whole year. So uh, has, has the yield curve gotten the message? And then also do you have a comment on the mechanism uh, that the federal reserves use to sort of manipulate the yield curve. I think that the two-year yields going higher is a mark of Powell being successful in his communication. That's what he wanted the market to price in, right? He wanted the market to get the picture that they're not going to be cutting rates next year, and it's possible that rates would be higher than the market expects. So that's in my view very successful communication. Now. The, the longer dated yield has, has not moved as much. And when we think about the longer dated yields, a lot of that is supply and demand. So as we all know, we have QT kicking off in full force this year and uh, this month. And so maybe in the coming months, as we have more supply in longer dated treasuries hitting the markets, maybe that will react as well. Now, to be clear, uh, this dynamic is, doesn't always play out like that. It's, it's kind of hard to predict beforehand uh, how QT reacts. My own view is that as we increase the supply of treasuries, both because the primary deficit is very high and because of QT, uh, we're likely to get more upward pressure in uh, in yields. And this is, again, this is happening at a time when both treasury market liquidity is, is pretty poor. And also, there is some concern in the markets that maybe inflation expectations, well, I, I, so maybe unanchoring. So I'm just speaking in econ- economist speak. Um, you know, there's a Neil Kashkari recently had a podcast and he was actually noting that that was not his base case, but there is some concern from him in, in the market that maybe the inflation dynamics going forward are not the same as it was before. And if that's the case, then there's going to be potentially a fundamental reevaluation of where monetary policy should be. And that means uh, much higher yields, maybe suddenly. Uh, the Powell's speech got a lot of attention, obviously, and rightly so, from from uh, Jackson Hole. Uh, but they had a they had a multi day conference uh, with a lot of top speakers, uh, really some of which some of whom really got into the weeds on economic theory. And uh, it's a little tough to read, honestly. Uh, no matter how many times you do it, this it just takes time to go through all this stuff. But if you if you try to navigate through, especially the PhD economists in in official positions. Um, I'm thinking of, of uh, Gita Gopinath in particular of the IMF. Uh, this concern about unanchoring expectations is woven through over and over in, in Gopinath's speech and, uh, and uh, Karsten's speech from the, from the BIS. Uh, that's a really big concern for them. And it's, uh, it's, I think it's very hard to, to put your finger on exactly what they mean. It's, it's, it's hard, it would hard, be hard to measure when expectations became unanchored, quote unquote. Uh, but I do think it's a scenario that has a lot of resonance in economic theory and it makes the, the institutional uh, operators in these places very, very anxious because it's the basis of their mandate uh, is to control inflation. Whether that's possible or not, that's still their job. Uh, and so now they're in a situation where they really have to prove uh, that they can do their job when push comes to shove. And they don't quite, they don't, they don't express it in a direct way necessarily, but it's, it's there over and over as a concern, which underlies the whole uh, central banking world uh, in, in every country right now and very present at, at Jackson Hole. And you know, Powell is thinking about that as well. So he really feels like he's got to, he's got to step on uh, c- control price, price growth, um, act and talk 
in a way that really sends strong messages because uh, central bank independence is at least in the back of his mind, is is what could be lost uh, if that fails. Hey, Dan, you mentioned the importance of inflation expectations, and that's obviously extremely important for from uh, for in the field of economics and uh, just macroeconomics profession. So, being a professor and a macro, can you explain to the audience how that works? Why is it so important that inflation expectations are anchored? Sure. Well, let me say first of all that I I, I will try to answer that question, but but. While we're doing that, we're in the world of academic economics, uh, which is an important world. It's important because it's the way that central banks think and it's, it drives what they do. It is not always the best description of how the actual world actually works. But people in important positions uh, use that tool to understand the world. So we should understand it, too, whether we think it's the best thing to do or not uh, in terms of understanding what's going to happen. Uh, inflation expectations, uh, the idea is uh, that when... I think about, um, let's say, as, a, as an employee of, of a business, I think about what income I need to afford the life that I want. Uh, if I, you know, I have to think about how much stuff costs in order for that to make sense. To evaluate my, a, a wage or salary offer, I need to know what my expenses are going to be. Uh, if prices are rising quickly, and I expect them to continue to rise quickly, so we're seeing close to 10% inflation in the U.S. right now, similar in other rich countries, if I expect that to to continue next year and the year after that, then when I think about the salary that I need, I got to ask for more because I know that my expenses are going to be 10% higher and another 10% higher the year after that. That's what I believe. And so that makes me want to ask for more wage, but, but higher compensation costs, that's an expense for businesses. And therefore, they have to charge more uh, to their for their products or services in order to pay for that uh, higher uh, compensation cost. So now if businesses start to believe that the costs are going to rise for them next year, 10%, the year after that, another 10%, uh, then they start embedding price rises into their own costs. And that can become a self-fulfilling uh, um, hypothesis. Now, yes, yeah. and uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell referenced this explicitly when he quoted Paul Volcker. Uh, and the quote from Volcker in 1979 was inflation feeds in part on itself. So part of the job of returning to a more stable and more productive economy must be to break the grip of inflationary expectations. Exactly. And, and Volcker did that at a quite high cost uh, in the US, a big recession, a lot of unemployment. Um, interest rates were high, very high and stayed high. Uh, it slowed down economic activity, cost a lot of people their jobs. It was, you know, it, it determined the course of the 80s in important ways, the Volcker recession. Uh, and for the next several decades, inflation in the U.S. was almost uh, almost always between zero and five percent uh, until last year. So uh, so you have to go back to Volcker and central bankers um, are finding ways to replay that script uh, right now. You can see it. You know, in whatever every, every one of those speeches, they they make some kind of overture to Volcker's legacy. They do make overtures to, to Volcker's legacy, and folks are they definitely are central bankers, particularly Jay Powell, much more hawkish than any um, what the Fed over the past decade after the Great Financial Crisis. However, I was going over some of Volcker's speeches from 1980, 1981. I have to say, for to. J-Pal is nowhere close to a true Volcker moment. I, he was, Volcker was doing things. He was not doing forward guidance. He was uh, basically tar, tar, trying to constrain the money supply. He First of all, he redefined what money was because he said the monetary aggregates that we have heretofore targeted are actually inappropriate. Uh, he, he was lambasting the uh, uh, government. He would, go, he would go before Congress and said, you know, we have a fiscal policy that is irresponsible and is in charge of inflation. I mean, the equivalent of that would be Jay Powell, like calling out President Biden and saying student loan forgiveness is not making my job any easier, which, you know, now that is totally uh, verboten. But uh, yeah, I, I, Joseph, are we, is, Powell has much farther to go before he becomes Volcker. Would you agree? I agree with you completely. I, I don't see Paul going to Congress and telling them to be more fiscally responsible. In fact, whenever he's asked to comment during his hearings, he's always like, I'm going to stay in my own lane. Except, of course, when it was during the pandemic, 
and he was very loudly for uh, large fiscal spending, and we all saw how that turned out. So uh, it, it would be good, at least, if you could go and at least gently mention that you guys are not helping me. <laughs> Uh, so, Daniel, you referenced some academic works that were, were published by central bankers at Jackson Hole. To be honest, I haven't read them. I definitely should. I, I've got to do my homework. But, Joseph, I know there was one paper and one speaker that you paid special attention to, uh, Isabel Schnabel uh, from the European Central Bank. What were, who is she? What were her comments? And why did you find them so significant? So, Isabel is one of the top people at the ECB. And her views are, of course, very paid attention to by, by the markets. And she was mentioning a number of things, actually. One of the things I thought was interesting was she suggested that, you know, what if we're in this different regime in inflation, where, for example, a lot of the things that we had in the past, like cheap energy, like globalization, what if that's going away? So that, I think, was really interesting, because if we have this new structural change in the world, that has implications for uh, monetary policy. And of course, she also emphasized how determined it was she was to get inflation under control. And again, that's in line with what uh, the central banking community, including Powell and uh, the BIS have been talking about. So as Dan mentioned, these perceived things like expectations to be important. And it's really, really important to get ahead of that because what they've learned from the 70s is that if you let inflation get out of control, uh, it's going to be even more painful later to, to get it back into its box. Mm. And just to put things in context, while inflation in the US is red hot, the Federal Reserve has hiked rates. Perhaps some people say it's not enough, but they have gone from zero to 225 25 basis points, so 2.25%. And the forward curve is suggesting that it gets as high as essentially really close to 4%. We're recording this just before noon on Wednesday, August 31st. So that's something. You're half of the way there. If inflation's at 8%, you go to 4%. You're half of the way there. The ECB, meanwhile, inflation's at 9.1% in the euro area, and their interest rates are at 0%. Dan, you are an expert on European central banking, you know, like Joseph, you're an expert in the plumbing, but you know, you, uh, your reach is, is global, not just on the federal reserve. Why are interest rates at zero? And then also, so that's the interest rate channel. And then also what's going on with the, the European, uh, uh, central banks balance sheet and the fed we're reducing, uh, the fed, I say, we, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not part of the fed, but in the fed, you know, the federal reserve's balance sheet is shrinking. What's going on with the, the Europeans, uh, balance sheet. So, but first comment on the rates, please. Sure. Um, the ECB is a little bit behind uh, the U.S. in terms of timeline. I'm not. I'm not making a judgment about what they're about the appropriateness of their policy. They're in a different. Uh, they have different concerns. They have a different legacy of policy. They they talk about things differently. Their political economic situation is different. In any case, they're raising rates. Uh, their their path of raising interest rates has been later and not quite as fast. In in if you count up the basis points, not as fast as the. Uh, as the Fed. In a sense, they had more accommodative policy, uh, previously, uh, even dipping down to negative, negative short-term rates. Um, they are on a tightening path now. That is, uh, is quite certain. Um, there's an ongoing debate in, in the ECB about, uh, whether to raise aggressively, follow the Fed's lead with, with half point or even three quarter point, um, rate rises. There's a camp. Is it a camp? There's, there's a, a, a thread in the, in the ECB, uh, discourse, which argues for slower rate rises, slow and steady, quarter point, um, may get to the same level, but just do it one meeting at a time rather than taking big, big leaps. Uh, I do, I've spent a fair time studying the ECB and other big central banks. Um, the important thing I think to say is that we're in a global dollar based system. And so, the Fed is still the one that sets the pace for everybody else. Uh, and the ECB is uh, responsible for monetary policy and financial governance in a big area, rich area, lots of capital flows, um, big geographic area, uh, subordinate to the U.S. in the sense of the global, we have a global dollar-based system and every central banker in the ECB will not disagree with, no central banker would disagree with that. But the euro also stands on its own to a greater extent than uh, than a lot of other uh, currencies. So uh, so it's still a dollar based system. But in in bigger, richer countries, um, Japan, I would put in this category as well. They do have some ability to make independent monetary policy. 
that's not so true for other countries uh, farther down the, the monetary hierarchy. Yeah, just to put it in context, so when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, that puts pressure on other central banks because foreign currencies will depreciate because money will flow to the dollar where now they're getting 2.25% instead of 0%. So for exactly. example, Brazil, the Bank of Brazil raised interest rates to 13%, perhaps higher. Now, the Bank of Ghana raised interest rates to above 20%. But uh, you know, Dan, you say that the ECB is still within the dollar system, but they have some independence. I mean, the ECB is at zero and they're, they're really, the ECB and Japan are extremely behind the curve. And that's why when folks talks about the US dollar index, the DXY, it's mostly the Euro and the, the, and Japan, which are, you know, uh, the, their currencies and or financial system is, is governed by central banks that are extremely dovish relative to the, to the Federal Reserve. So let's talk about the, the, uh, the balance sheet. And sure. Dan, on your, you got a, a piece on your blog, which is excellent, uh, soon parted, about, uh, it's called anti-fragmentation. And it's not just about the size of the ECB balance sheet, but also its, its composition and sure. uh, the securities, that, uh, the government securities, what countries they come from. So why, tell us about that. Sure. Uh, the ECB uh, operates a big balance sheet comparable in size, in similar scale to the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, they govern a monetary area that is made up of uh, different sovereign countries. So the ECB is comparable to the Fed, but in the Fed, you know, we have uh, the, the U.S. has, uh, has a single, um, has a single monetary system, uh, but the states don't really have a lot of political independence. In, the, in Europe, uh, that's not true. You've got France and Germany, Italy, Spain, uh, these countries with a considerable amount of, you know, they have their own uh, political systems, their own uh, governance. So the ECB is trying to hold together this monetary system in places with a, with a complex, inter in a place with a complex internal politics. Um, they've been buying securities like other uh, central banks. The ECB has been buying securities. Uh, since the global financial crisis, they've expanded their balance sheet enormously. Um, like in other places, that is now leveling out. What we found uh, since, uh, this is a recurring uh, theme, but people have been worrying about it since at least the beginning of the summer, uh, that there's been an increasing divergence in the rate paid by uh, different European sovereign borrowers. So the main thing that people worry about is the interest rate paid by the Italian government on their debt, especially 10-year debt is a place where people measure that. Uh, the rate paid by the Italian government on 10-year bonds versus the rate paid by the German government on 10-year bonds. Uh, and that spread measures, in a sense, the, the credit risk, um, you might say, between, an, between lending to the Italian government versus lending to the German government. From the ECB's point of view, that's a measure of what they call fragmentation, because it says, uh, it says that credit conditions are different in different parts of the Eurozone but monetary, a monetary union is supposed to have the same credit conditions or close to the same credit conditions all across the union, by which I mean the Eurozone, uh, not identical to the European Union, of course, but the European Monetary Union, the Eurozone. Uh, so the ECB worries that if uh, interest rates are high in, in Italy, then that means that the, the union is not holding together as closely as it should. So what we've seen in just the last couple months is that... Uh, as the, with this big bond portfolio, right, there's constant flows as some of those bonds get repaid and the ECB can choose whether to roll over the proceeds by buying new bonds. And what has just started to happen basically since June in this graph that you're showing, um, there's a lot of information on there. But the basic story is, uh, is that um, the ECB had been buying uh, bonds from all over the Eurozone, from all over the, uh, from all the different European sovereign borrowers. And just in the last two months, They've changed policies, and now they're, they're, you can see the, uh, the uh, net flows for German bonds have become negative, meaning they're allowing German holdings of German sovereign debt to uh, run off, and they're using the proceeds to buy um, other sovereign debt. In particular, Italian is the one that shows up most clearly uh, in, the, uh, in the graph. So uh, this is a way to bring, try to bring those, um, those interest rates back together to bring uh, Italian, the spread between Italian and German bonds, uh, down. And so from the ECB's point of view, that's, that's an anti-fragmentation tool. Interesting because they did this using existing rules. At the same time, they announced a more comprehensive policy, anti-fragmentation policy. 
But even while they were doing that, they started doing this transaction using uh, the authority that they already uh, have. And uh, what, you know what its effects are going to be. I think uh, we'll we'll have to see. But uh, the flows are the the change in policy is pretty significant, as you can see in the graph. And the flows are are not small. And soon we'll have August data, and maybe maybe the flows got even bigger. There's a good chart that Dan has in his post that highlights this point. I think that highlights Dan's point really well. You can see that um, the flows into the eurozone bond market there's less to Germany and a lot more going to Italy and Spain, right? So to Dan's point, the ECB is trying to compress that spread. Um, so the ECB, unlike the Fed, has this other aspect to their monetary policy transmission, where when they hike rates, sometimes it doesn't flow to the different sovereigns at the same rate. Sometimes uh, it doesn't flow to Spain and Italy as well. And so you'll see that um, that spread, as Dan mentioned, between Italian, being, Italian debt and German boons widens. And they're trying to close that. And you can see it in, in that purchase flow that uh, that's in Dan's blog post. Yeah. And Dan, you said the word credit risk. And some people listening may have said, did, did he mean credit risk? But you actually were correct. Because in the US, the US Treasury, essentially, when you buy a Treasury, a 10-year note, two-year note, whatever, from the Treasury, there's essentially no credit risk because the US government can print its way can print as much money as it, as it wants to pay you back. It is a monetary sovereign. Italy is not. Italy cannot print euros. Uh, so they essentially are similar to a company who's borrowing dollars via bonds. They're just a company uh, borrowing euros via bonds. So there is a risk of a default and they could do some sort of restructuring and, and the like. Or they could just leave the eurozone. <laughs> so there's that redenomination risk as well. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, we can summarize all that as credit risk. If push came to shove, and we were actually talking about exit of Italy from uh, from the eurozone, which I don't think is likely. Let me be clear. Or or from Spain. Neither of those things are likely to happen. Um, it would be messy, and so it wouldn't just be a, a default. It would be an extremely complicated legal process uh, where the the nature of European sovereign debt would have to get. Uh, would have to get litigated and, and we would be able to talk about it for months and months and months at a time. Uh, you know, that's not happening, but what is happening is that people ask for, for, uh, a little bit of a spread for Italian debt over German debt because this, this possibility is out there somewhere on the horizon. Uh, and so it costs more for the Italian government to borrow than, than Germany. And does this, does the fact that the ECB does not want to, uh, have Italian spreads, bond, bond spreads widen significantly. Does that take primacy over the ECB's mandate to fight inflation? Because, you know, in the, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve is shrinking its, its holdings, it's shrinking its balance sheet in order to fight inflation. We can have a talk about how effective that actually is in combating inflation. But in Europe, uh, you know, what is actually happening to the balance sheet itself? Is the, is the total number of the balance sheet, is that still increasing? Is it, is it going down or is it flatlining? Uh it's basically flatlining. Uh, definitely these sovereign debt purchases, the two graphs uh, farther up in this post that you already showed, uh, both show uh, that the, these two different asset purchase programs, which are called uh, PEP and PSPP, you can see the post for the details, um, that both of those uh, purchase programs have been stopped and are in runoff, kind of in stasis. So the total balance is stable now, but that means they have to reinvest uh, any, any proceeds that come in have to be reinvested. So the overall level is, is staying, the, staying the same. Uh, and I think that's true of the whole balance sheet for the ECB, more or less. Um, the whole level staying the same, but what they're doing is, is rotating the contents of that portfolio as it rolls over, away from holding German debt and towards holding Spanish and Italian uh, debt. Uh, to, to summarize. So, um, so that's, you know, there's some political economic consequences for that. Now that this piece of information is out in the, is out in the world, um, it makes, you know, it makes certain people who have a certain feeling about German debt, uh, angry that the ECB would, would sell German debt and buy Italian debt, right? And those are the political fissures, which are at the absolute heart of the ECB. That's why, um, that's why Germany plays a special role in the ECB, uh, and and that's the that's the thing that people are always arguing about. Uh, if you dig away all of the other layers, um, we'll see. Mm. I, I don't forecast the uh, you know I don't forecast like eurozone breakdown or anything like that. But 
but they're having to work to, to hold it together. Mm. Thanks, Dan. M- moving back across the pond, you have another excellent chart on soon parted that I'm going to need both of your help in understanding. Okay. It is of the various interest rates that financial parties pay. You know, when people say the Fed is hiking rates or interest rates have collapsed, uh, you know, there's not just one rate. There's the Fed funds rate and there are uh, so many different rates. Dan, we're looking at this chart. What are we seeing here and sure. why is it significant? Right. Let me let me take first crack. I'm glad, I'm glad you like this uh, chart. Uh, this one is definitely uh, information dense. Uh, so, uh, so you know, if, if you're not used to looking at this kind of thing, it might take a minute. But let me see what I can do as far as an explanation. This is a graph of short-term interest rates. All of these rates are overnight U.S. dollar interest rates. So these are measures of the cost of overnight money at the absolute heart of the global dollar system, overnight money markets, more or less in New York. Um, every rate here is measured as a spread above, and sometimes it's negative, so a spread relative to the rate that the Fed pays at the overnight reverse repo facility. So that rate should function more or less as a floor uh, because you can always deposit funds at the Fed and get the overnight repo rate, uh, the, the overnight repo facility rate. So people in general should not accept a lower interest rate than that on any money that they have. They can always go to the Fed and get the overnight repo rate. So that rate is at zero. Remember, that rate is changing over time during this period, right? We've been raising that rate. It moves together with the Fed funds target. It's a constant spread. Um, so it's a flat line here at zero in this graph, but the actual number has been changing. What I'm showing here is spreads uh, relative to that number. So uh, what you can see is that there's a bunch of different overnight interest rates. Uh, they move together more than not. They tend to move as a group. Uh, they, uh, there's also spreads between them. In certain, at certain times, the spreads remain constant. At certain times, the spreads widen and narrow. What we learned in the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, some of us learned it then, some of us knew it already before that. You have to watch these spreads to understand what's going on in the monetary plumbing. Uh, and when, when these rates that normally move together, each one of which measures the price on billions or even trillions of dollars worth of daily flows in the money markets, right? So if those prices are normally very similar. That means, you know, uh, that means that Fed funds versus overnight repo is not a, is not a, not much difference in the money markets. That means things are working well. And when the spreads open, open wide, that means one thing or another thing has suddenly gotten super expensive. And that can be a sign that something is beginning to break down. So Dan, it looks like it's can kind of been, the spreads are widening a bit, right? Yeah. It seems like after we hit that below zero, things begin to widen yeah. as if the transmission policy is, is a little bit more fragmented now. Yep, yeah. that's what I see too. There is a, there was a period. So this is May 2020, uh, up to a few weeks ago. Um, you can see all through 2020, 2021 rates are clustered in the middle and the tending sort of towards, towards the top. I, to me, that picture is pushing up within the, within the range. And that really changed uh, after the beginning of 2021. And so I call this leaky floor because I think the Fed is trying to provide a floor using the overnight repo facility. Uh, but you can see that it is not completely successful. And there are a couple of repo rates in particular that have repeatedly printed below the floor. Um, how much should we worry about this? Joseph's question just now, you know, uh, is this a, some kind of breakdown in transmission? Um, I think that the answer to that question is definitely yes, that it is a breakdown in transmission. Uh, should we worry about it? I can't tell yet. Um, I don't see a lot of people talking about this picture. And that could be because they believe that, uh, that this is, that this system can handle this level of fluctuation and will correct itself before too long. That could be right. Uh, I'm not certain, but I think those spreads are getting abnormally, uh, large. They, they, after this graph was printed, they collapsed a little bit back towards zero and then have started to expand again, uh, with a lot of, of negative, negative spreads on short term rates relative to the overnight repo. So uh, this state of affairs is ongoing. Right. So uh, for folks who are listening to this as a podcast, I apologize and I appreciate your your um, uh, uh, patience. This is not a chart that you can just see in your head, like the S&P 500. This is a very complicated chart. So uh, perhaps it would be good to watch it on, on YouTube. But 
I'm just going to explain what I understand. And then I'm going to give the reins to you, Joseph, when I lose control. Um, so the green and blue lines that are flat lines that do not wiggle, that is the Fed, that is comp- controlled by the Federal Reserve. And th- that is a target range of the federal funds rate which is what the Fed targets, with the green line being the lower bound and the blue line being the upper bound. So now when we say the Fed is going to hike 75 basis points, we mean it's going to raise its range from 225 to 250 to three to three uh, to 325. And then in the orange, we have the Fed funds effective rate. And you see it squiggle a little bit, but not that much. Why? Because it's kind of a dead market, as you pointed out. And now the real action is in the repo market. And that is where we see the extremely squiggly lines. And that, Joseph, is where I'll hand it over to you. So what is the turquoise line, the GCF Treasury repo, as well as the tri-party? And and exactly explain why it's significant as well that it's gone below this channel. Like Dan mentioned, it seems like when rates get really low, the ONRP doesn't function as well as a floor. It's a leaky floor, as Dan mentioned. And that probably has to do with the fact that not everyone has access to the ONRRP. Um, only select counterparties do, mostly money, money market mutual funds. So if you're a money market mutual fund, you can always just deposit money at the Fed. But if you're not, then, well, what are you going to do, right? You, you, if someone offers you a rate that's below the ONRRP, well, maybe that's better than nothing. So you can have, like Dan mentioned, a leaky floor. And it looks like it's getting increasingly leaky. Um, we'll have to f- figure out to see if QT will, will tighten things up a bit, or maybe if we have more bill issuance later on. Yeah, exactly. I, this is the, I think this is the graph that I watch, and most of this is daily data, so you can watch it every day. This is the graph that I watch, and I suspect that a change in monetary conditions is going to show up first uh, somehow in in this picture. Uh, I think the fact that all these rates are at or below the floor uh, is an indication that uh, the Fed is that 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 monetary conditions are loose, that there's there's money flowing around here with nowhere to go, uh, and people are accepting uh, are accepting low interest rates on their money because there's nowhere else to put it. And when things start to change in the financial system, um, one of the first things we're going to see is that this, the, the, the pattern of this, uh, of this collection of, uh, short-term rates, uh, is going to move up off the floor and start behaving differently. A good outcome for the Fed would be that it does that in a smooth and orderly way. Things start to drift slowly back up to the middle of the range, and then they stay there in a nice orderly picture. Um, you know, even in, even in 2020, 2021, early in the pandemic, a lot of things were a mess. Uh, but, but money markets weren't a mess, uh, for the most part during that time. And I think that this picture shows that. So, uh, so that would be a good outcome for the Fed. A bad outcome for the Fed would be that they somehow lose control of some of these rates. Uh, and, and they have to work a little bit harder to keep money markets working. So I have very little confidence in my ability to understand this. So if folks are listening to this and they feel like it's complicated and they don't understand it, don't worry. I I feel the exact same way. So repo is overnight or short-term lending of securities. So if I want to repo my, uh, uh, my security, I essentially sell my treasury to you, Joseph, you you buy it and then I'm going to buy it back from you at a, a later date. So it's essentially a loan. And the Federal Reserve's reverse repo facility is where select institutions can deposit their excess reserves and get a return. So in a sense, they are, quote, lending to the Fed. I know the word lent, lend is kind of a word fraught with some contradictions and nuance that maybe, maybe we'll get into. But the real squiggly line that is out of control, I believe it is the tri-party general collateral line. So at its lowest level, it's 20 basis points lower, meaning that folks would actually lend, uh, quote, lend money at negative 20 basis points relative to the reverse repo. So why would, why would that make sense? You know, if, if Joseph, if your bank is paying me 1% on deposits and Daniel, your deposit is giving me 80 basis points, 20 points lower. Why would I ever go to you, Dan? Why would that make sense? Right. Uh, well, just mentioned earlier, one possibility is, uh, you know, is differential access to the Fed's facilities. So the Fed offers this overnight repo facility. 
Um, I, I think of it as a deposit facility, which makes a little bit more sense than a, uh, than a lending facility um, or than a borrowing facility. You know, the, the Fed is accepting deposits, just acting like a bank, taking in cash as a, a, through the repo market. And in repo, it's, as you said, secured. So the, the counterparty gets a specific, uh, gets access to a treasury security to hold as, as collateral. So not everybody can use that facility. Uh, only uh, it's, it's intended for money market funds. Just like, uh, just like the reserve balances are a deposit facility for the commercial banking system and only certain banks can access them. Um, if you're somebody else, you might still have a bunch of cash to put somewhere. And if you had access to the Fed, then you could just put it at the overnight repo facility and, and get that rate. But since you can't, you might have to accept a lower rate from someone else. Just on, just on Dan's point, so these money market mutual funds that have access to the Fed, they charge a management fee, an asset management fee. So if you are an investor you can be who doesn't have access to the Fed, you can either give your money to the money market fund to invest at the Fed, and they'll give you a return minus their fee, or you can just accept a rate that's lower than the RRP. So you, you probably have to compare. Uh, just to make this more concrete, what if the RRP right now is 1%, just hypothetically? Then if I don't have access to the RRP, what are my options? Well, I can deposit, I can give money to a money market fund who will turn it around and deposit it for 1% at the Fed, and then maybe charge me 20 basis points, maybe charge me 50 basis points. So the best that I can get would be, let's say, 0.8% if they're charging 20 basis points. So in theory, I would be willing to accept an investment in the private market that is higher than 0.8%. It's not as good as the RRP, but it's better than the RRP after fees. Right, and uh, Joseph, what is the difference between the tri-party general collateral and the uh, general collateral uh, treasury repo? Yeah, so as... Daniel mentioned in his post, I think the repo market is segmented. You know, he has a pretty good description in his post. I, I'll let him explain the different repo markets between uh, tri-party and you know, uh, GC, uh, GCF and so forth. Sure, sure. Well, look, we're, we're, this stuff is better understood through reading. So, so I'll plug my, my newsletter, which is called Soon Parted, one more time. There, uh, tri-party repo is, this is the big one, right? This is where the Fed is doing overnight repo. All of that flow goes through the tri-party repo. So there's some overlap in these different rates that are shown here. Um, they're, they're not completely, uh, they're not completely distinct from one another, you know? Um, tri-party repo, uh, is the biggest repo market. There's a lot of treasury collateral. There's a few other things happening in, in, in tri-party repo. Um, and there's a large number of both lenders and borrowers. A lot of institutions of different kinds meet at the, at the tri-party repo market. There are a couple of different uh, sub-segments which serve slightly more specific purposes within the repo market, one of which really matters for this picture, right? The, um, the biggest spikes down are, are actually in the uh, DVP repo. This is a DVP is delivery versus payment. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a specific facility offered by the DTCC, big securities clearing infrastructure, um, uh, that allows people to get access to specific collateral in the treasury market. So this is interesting. Mm -hmm. What is basically happening is that people are going to this market to, not to deposit money, but actually to, because they're looking for the collateral that they get back for that, for their deposit. So they're going to put in some cash and they're going to get back a treasury security. And, it's, and they're not actually looking for a place to deposit money. They're looking to get the security because they've sold those securities. They turn around, they, they obtain the security through as collateral through the repo market. And they sell it to somebody else and they're waiting for the price to fall. When it falls, they're going to buy it back and they're going to return the, the collateral. In the meantime, they have outstanding repo borrowing. And, uh, and so what does that mean? It means two things. One, that they're willing to pay at least 20 basis points on certain occasions uh, to, to hold on to their bet that bond prices are going to fall. Uh, they're willing to pay a significant overnight carry, cost of carry for these transactions because they're confident in their short positions. They think bond prices have to fall. Uh, and that means that this, uh, some of these spikes, one possible explanation for these downward spikes in overnight rates is connected to, um, to other maturities farther out on the yield curve. Uh, where th this bet is more or less betting on, on farther parts of the yield curve to rise, meaning that bond prices, uh, not overnight in lending, but, but two or 10 year borrowing, uh, 
that right. those interest rates are going to rise. When that happens, those bond prices will fall and those short positions will make money. And this 20, 20 basis point gap would then prove to be a profitable investment. So this is a theory that I uh, have heard. Uh, my, these are my words, but I'm, this is based on conversations with people who are in a position to know. Um, but, I, but it's not firsthand knowledge. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out here. So that's a theory. Uh, we'll kind of have to wait and see uh, uh, to find out if, if we can confirm that theory or not. Right. Dan, earlier I'm, I incorrectly said that the uh, red line that was at the bottom of the chart was the tri-party general collateral. You correctly pointed out that is it is the DVP overnight repo rate, which allows access to specific securities longer out on the curve, like the two-year or the 10-year. And it's actually so people can short the bond. You know, there, there are some folks who say, and there's an element of truth to it, that this this uh, the fact that rates repo rates are so low have collapsed below the floor it indicates that there's a scramble for collateral because people need the collateral because there's a chaos in the system. And they're sure, sure. But also another way to put it is people want to borrow this collateral because they want to short it because they think it's going down. So not that there's the collateral so good, but that it's so bad in the same way that if you have some like bankrupt stock and you want to short it, it's going to cost you 500% a year annualized to, to, you know, um, not that the two year treasury is, is by any means like a junk bankrupt stock, but you know, maybe people, um, you know, someone listens to Joseph Wang's podcast that we did in December that the, the, you know, the fed is the rates are going to spike and they go in their brokerage account. They short a two year treasury future via their broker. How does their broker enter the trade? They have to get, they have to short it now too. And how do they do that? They have to borrow a two year treasury note. Can they do that? Uh, you know, via the, the tri-party thing? No, they have to go specifically hunt that security down and then short it. So is, is that why? Am I, am I totally off base? If, you have, if you're a cash investor and you invest in repo, uh, you, can, you can either, uh, sometimes it's what, what you, you can do a general collateral. What that means is let's say you invest, you, you put your cash in and you can receive basically any sort of treasury security. You don't get to choose. You don't really care. You're really more about investing cash and just want to have some safe collateral. Now, when it's DVP, as Dan mentioned, when you then you're putting out cash. But what you really want, though, is a specific security. Maybe you want this short the on the run two year, uh, like you mentioned, Jack. So that's the difference between, let's say, the specials market and the GC market. And the specials, which is done in DVP, as Dan mentioned, you you specify what security that you want, and that helps push repo rates lower because. Uh, in order to get that specific security, oftentimes you're willing to accept a lower repo rate. So for example, if the general collateral rate is 1%, then you invest your cash and you're willing to accept any treasury security and you get a return of 1%. Um, but let's say you want a specific security and you're, you're willing to pay for it. And how do you pay for it? You pay for it by willing to accept a lower repo rate. So for example, let's say I really want that two year because I want to short it as you guys have been talking about. I'm willing to put my cash out and accept a return of just 50 basis points. So that's much lower than the 1% GC rate, but that's okay because I really want the two year and I want it because I want to short it. Um, so um, it, it's not necessarily as, as you mentioned, Jack, some kind of collateral shortage. It's maybe because people think the collateral is not priced well and they want to express a market view. And, you know, if you look at Dan's um, graph, the decline in DVP repo kind of coincides with rates going higher, right? So it makes a lot of sense to think that, you know, when DVP rates are very low relative to the RP, that means there's a tremendous demand for specific securities to short. I had a, after I put this graph out, I had a request to mark the dates of the uh, Fed rate hikes. So the next time you see this graph, it has a vertical line each time the Fed uh, raised interest rates, which adds to the information that you're being asked to take in, but it actually makes it make a little um, bit more you know, sense. Also. At the Fed, yeah. we actually have a chart like this that we would show. And, and the, 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 it's just like this, except yes, it also has the FOMC dates. That's good. That's, that's high praise when you, you make a chart and someone says, I, you know, <laughs> no, we actually do. 
Um, well, before we move on to our final topic, I just want to give a uh, final shout out to you guys' uh, blogs and books. Daniel, people can find your writings at, at Soon Parted uh, on Substack, and we'll put the articles that we discussed in the description. And then your book is called Min- Minsky, which uh, I want to check out. Uh, Joseph, your writings can be found at uh, fedguide.com. And your book, of course, Central Banking 101 is a must read. Daniel, let's move on to our final topic, which is Tornado Cash, which I first heard about sort of from someone in crypto maybe, you know, nine or so months ago. And then I see that it was, uh, you know, shut down uh, uh, by the U.S. government. What's going on here in really basic terms? Explain what happened and why it's significant. Sure. Um Right, so so now we're in crypto crypto world, um, and which I approach. I'm a I'm a curious skeptic. You know, I'm I'm not. Uh, I, I think the questions are interesting. I want to understand what's going on there. I I don't believe we're going to rewrite the monetary system overnight, but but there's cool ideas there, and I want to understand them. So Tornado Cash, this is a crypto project. You could call it DeFi, decentralized finance um, uh, application. It's uh, you know it's code. Basically, so so the, the the people who work on this um, have written a computer program. That computer program executes on the Ethereum blockchain um, and on other blockchains. It is provides a payment service, uh, which is very clever, in fact, and uses very modern uh, cryptography and uh, and some pretty smart coding um, to allow uh, people to make and receive payments anonymously uh, using the Ethereum blockchain and other blockchains. Um, if you know Tor, uh, the, 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 you know, internet traffic anonymization service works along a similar principle. Uh, the way in, in very quick terms, um, the way it works is that you go in, um, uh, you go into the tornado cash space, you acquire tokens. The tokens are in fixed denominations. They're decimal, uh, fractions of, uh, of Ethereum, 0.1 Ethereum, 1 Ethereum, 10 Ethereum, uh, Ether, I should say, is the name of the coin. Um, so, so fixed denominations. So it's like cash in a way that, you know, you can't tell a 10, one $10 bill from another $10 bill. It's just like that. Um, cryptographically, there is a system which hides each, uh, each person who's, who's putting tokens in. It hides them among all the other ones. You can privately exchange the, the key to one of these tokens off chain, offline on a, on a piece of paper or, a, or a, some other private channel, um, to someone else who can redeem the coin. And cryptogra- cryptographically, mathematically, it's impossible to connect the person who took the money out with the person who put the money in. Uh, so you could observe someone making a tornado cash payment and you could observe someone re- receiving a tornado cash payment, but you couldn't link the two. Um, this is uh, a, a way to allow anonymous uh, payments. Very clever. Uh, it came under attack, has come under attack recently from the, um, should I say attack? It's come under scrutiny from, uh, yeah. from U.S. regulators who've said uh, your service is being used uh, by North Korean um, organized uh, state organized crime and is being used to launder money. Uh, you're unable to comply the way I read the, the, the regulation or the sanction that's been placed against is you are unable to comply with know your customer and anti-money laundering regulations. Your service is intended to avoid those, uh, those regulations, but you are providing a financial service. What's interesting is that there's no assets to this, to this service. It only exists as open source code. Uh, their GitHub has been taken down, but the code is still out there and even more, it's still executing on the Ethereum blockchain. It's there, and there's not really anybody who can just flip it off. Uh, so it's raising some big questions about uh, the regulation of crypto and what that means for people who are in that space. Uh, yeah, so they, they, they can't take it down. Are there people uh, who are the CEO, the CFO, people associated with the company where you know the government can knock on their doors or, yeah. or what? Yeah, someone's been taken into custody. The, the, the guy, it's not a CEO, right? It's not a business. <laughs> There's no legal entity. It's just a, a person, um, and his name is escaping me. I, t- I tend to think about what they do, not necessarily the names, but you can look it up. Yeah. Um, it has been taken into custody. Crypto world is up in arms about this. Um, you can understand why. Why? Because this, all this person did was write a computer program. You know. Um, so I see this as a major political economic contest between financial regulators who have the power of the state 
and who have the authority of law versus code, who I think have probably misjudged the situation, believing themselves to be uh, beyond the reach of those laws. I think we're going to see, in fact, that it's money. It was always money. It's finance. It was always finance. And when push comes to shove, the courts will stand on the side of the regulators. Uh, you know, we've regulated money. We human societies have regulated money and banking for a long time. And we're not going to stop just because uh, someone figured out how to run a distributed ledger. So this is basically a truly decentralized kind of anonymizer, basically. Is that is that right? And yep. it seems like they are having trouble stopping. Well, that has huge implications that... I can understand if the government cannot track people, they, they would be upset. And not just that, I'm sure they would say that potentially that gives criminals a lot of opportunity, but um, it also limits the power of the state significantly. It does. What you're seeing right now, so Tornado Cash, you can't switch it off. They've, they've brought the programmer into custody, but the code still exists. Uh, so what you're seeing is, most people don't access the blockchain directly. They go through a wallet provider or some kind of account, Coinbase or, or whatever. And those places do yeah. have assets and they do have businesses and they do have lawyers and they are in a position to cut their users off from this service, right? So, so you can't switch off Tornado Cash, but you can make it so that a, a large majority of users can't access it through the, the way that they normally access the crypto world. And those institutions are, in fact, complying by and large with the sanctions, despite the, the free speech argument that crypto uh, uh, enthusiasts are making. The, the businesses that are involved in this are saying we're going to follow the, the rules, which is not a surprise. Yes. Coinbase is a publicly traded company. They have shareholders. They have stakeholders. They ha yeah, they uh, they have to comply. I mean, if you're a business, you have to comply with the law. You can't break the law. Yeah, I think crypto. <laughs> I mean, you maybe, can. You can. You can try. Of you can. <laughs> you can try, right? And I think crypto has acted as as though there wouldn't be any consequences, right? The crypt, the whole crypto mindset and and the 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 movement. And I I don't I'm not against it necessarily, but I think they've acted as though they're free to do whatever they want. And you could see why they would draw that conclusion um, from the experience of big tech over the last twenty years uh, have been able to write their own rules to significant to a significant extent. It's not until recently that they've tried to get into the core of the financial system, the core of the monetary system. That's pretty new. And I think that they're going to find that the, the regulations bind a little more tightly uh, in, that, in that system. How this all plays out in the next couple of years for, for crypto, uh, I have some opinions. Uh, and and I, I, so far, what I've seen from Tornado Cash has not caused me to radically change my opinion. So this makes sense to me. Um, but the details are really up for, for discussion. We're going to find out. Um, I find it very interesting. You know, uh, I, I write a lot about crypto and I'm, I'm always trying to understand what is new and how it fits in with, with what's already there. Uh, crypto, I think the way to, to critique what they've done is that they have not been sufficiently interested in understanding the system as it already, uh, works. They assume that it's simple. They assume that it doesn't work very well. There's some truth to that. But, but people should spend more time understanding how it actually does work and how it has worked. Uh, and, and that's what I try to add to the conversation. Uh, and there are definitely plenty of people who do, who want to be part of that conversation as well. So, right. Well, there, there are a lot of parallels that if you've studied traditional finance, you would be aware of. So, like, I really don't know anything. I know very little about crypto and I know much less about computer science, not a computer science person at all. So, totally technologically illiterate. Uh, however, you know, when I did learn that uh, Terra Luna was, it was, it was, it was unbacked, but then it was became backed because it added Bitcoin to its balance sheet. But I, you know, I instantly thought, okay, well, the time when it's going to need this Bitcoin is going to be a time of stress. And under the time of stress, Bitcoin will have gone down something exactly. like 40%. And that's exactly what happened. Like if you're exactly. a real estate, if you're a bank, you can't rely on, you know, short-term short overnight loans to like Lehman Brothers. You know, it's, it's all correlated. So there's a lot of parallels. Exactly. <laughs> you should read my book uh, because you've already, you've, already got the, you've already got the core idea right there. Uh, and no, that, I think you're exactly so right. I, guys, I, I have Daniel's exactly book right. and it's great. So I highly recommend you read it. And Jack, you're so, you're so on point Thank about you. that Luna using Bitcoin to back Luna. That makes no sense. That, that's like having like, you know, a lot of US dollar debt, but then backhand with like Japanese yen or something like that. There, there's that currency mismatch that doesn't make any sense. That was, that was totally going to blow up. It's like, Joseph, you said, Jack, you own Apple stock. 
Uh, what if it goes down? I said, Joseph, I'm diversified. I, I don't just have Apple. I also have Microsoft <laughs> and Facebook and Netflix. I'm, don't worry. I'm exactly. good. I'm diversified. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, gentlemen, it's, uh, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, getting to, to pick your brains. Um, Joseph, you, people can find your work, uh, again, fedtheguy.com. On Twitter, you are at fedguy12. Daniel, again, your blog, uh, Soon Parted. Folks should definitely check it out. Uh, Daniel, what, where are you on Twitter? At D.H. Nielsen. We can put that in the, uh, we can put that in the caption. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, thanks so much. We'd love to do this again. Thanks very much for having me. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks. And guys, remember to follow Jack and listen to Forward Guidance, one of the best macro podcasts on the internet. Oh, wow. Because of you, Joseph. You're right. But it's because, because of us. Of All right. <laughs> okay. Bye. There we go. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.